following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 today. And uh, we'll be in verses 17 through 20. And so let's go ahead and I'll begin by reading through our text for today. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The passage we just read is a really important, crucial passage uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, it introduces the first major section of the body. So, so verses 21 through 48 uh, follow this, this introduction uh, where, where with Jesus giving, uh, well, first of all, in, in these paragraphs, he quotes a statement from the Old Testament law, and then he follows with his own authoritative instruction. A building off of that statement from the law, and it really is a powerful section of Scripture. We're going to have some really, I don't know if the sermon will be convicting, but the text is going to be very convicting as we work our way through each of those statements. And verses 17 through 20 introduce that section by telling us why it is that Jesus has the authority to teach with the same level of authority as the Mosaic Law. So so because of that, this passage is very important, but it's important not just for the sermon, but also more broadly to how we understand the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. This passage is, is sort of a hinge passage between the two major sections of the Bible. And it helps us, especially as Christians, understand, well, what is my relationship to the Old Testament law? Now, that might sound like nerdy stuff for a library, but it's actually quite practical because our lives would look very different if, if we thought differently about our relationship to the law. So, so imagine you know, what it would be like if, if we believed that, that we were still bound by every a requirement of the law. We'd be meeting on Saturday instead of Sunday. You know, most of you would be in sin right now because the clothes you're wearing have mixed fabrics, and that's against the law. Uh, your diet would look very different, and your calendar would be built around the, the feasts that, that Israel uh, was called to practice. So, so there are big differences in your life that in part are due to how we understand this passage, even if you've never thought about it before. So I want to encourage you to to put on your thinking cap today. We're we're going to wade a little bit more deeply than than we sometimes do. And and let's work to really understand what Jesus is saying here. Because because if you do, 
you're going to come away with a lot better understanding of God's Word and how the various parts of God's Word fit together and as well of, of God's will for your life today. So, so let's begin in verse 17 where Jesus tells us very simply that He fulfilled the law. So, so, so Jesus begins the passage with a strong denial. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. So the law and the prophets would be a shorthand common description for the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, now why is it that Jesus makes that denial? Well, well, the reason is, is that skeptics of Jesus would have accused him of, of abolishing or, or denying the significance of the Old Testament. And we see that throughout the Gospels, right? That, that they're constantly angry at Jesus for, for rejecting the various traditions of the Pharisees about the Sabbath and about food laws and various things. They got really mad at him. But I think in particular, Jesus is anticipating the fact that people might see what he says in, in the remainder of chapter 5 as undermining the law of Moses. Because he's going to take what the law of Moses says... And he is going to speak as an equal authority to the law. So, so Jesus prefaces everything that's coming in the remainder of chapter 5 by saying explicitly, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, on the contrary, Jesus says in verse 17, I came to, he uh, uh, just says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, now, this is where the controversy with, with this passage begins. It begins with that verb, fulfill. And, and what exactly does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law? And, and, and people have debated that question for a long time. I've got books in my office that are dedicated to, to basically answering that sort of question. And it's an important question because it really does have massive implications uh, for how I live my life as a Christian. So I think it's worth our time to mention there are three views uh, regarding what Jesus means here, the first is, is that Jesus means that Christ perfectly obeyed the law. Now, that's true, right? Jesus did perfectly obey the law. He, he didn't always obey every tradition of, of the scribes and Pharisees that they had added to the law. But Galatians 4 verse 4 tells us that when Jesus came to earth, he submitted to the law and he obeyed every aspect of that law. But I don't believe that that's what Jesus means here, simply that he obeyed the law. Uh, for one, because the verb that Jesus uses uh, is almost always used uh, throughout Scripture to speak not of obedience, but of some kind of prophetic fulfillment. And, and as well, uh, when you read on, verses 21 through 48... They're not talking about how Jesus obeyed the law. They're moving in a very different direction. So I do not believe that's what Jesus means. A second view would be that Christ fully explained the law. So according to this view, verses 21 through 48 explain ideas that were always embedded in the law of Moses, but that people never fully understood. All right, so, so, so in verse 17, fulfill means that Jesus brought out a new depth to the law that people had never recognized before. So, so it's, but, but, but the problem with this view is that 
I think it's pretty clear when you read on that Jesus goes beyond just expounding on the law to actually teaching new content. So, so for example, a look at what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32. He says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So, so verse 31 quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And, and if you take this view, uh, you would be saying, essentially, that, that what Jesus does is, is he basically just brings out meaning to that, to that verse that people had never recognized before. I think when you look at verse 32, Jesus is not bringing out a meaning that's inherent in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. He is adding to it. He is teaching new things, so to speak. So, so I believe that, that so, 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 and he's doing so based on his authority as the Son of God. So, so I don't think that view uh, deals with it either. So, so the third view, the view that I think, uh, I believe Jesus means here in verse 17, is he is saying that he is the end of the law and that he has introduced a new era. Now, I found it interesting when I was studying this week that this verb fulfill is used 15 times in the book of Matthew. And 10 of those times, it speaks of how Jesus either fulfilled a prophecy of the Old Testament or, or to how the Old Testament points to him. And I believe that idea of prophetic fulfillment uh, really fits best in this context as well. So Jesus is saying here, when he says that I came to fulfill the law, he is saying that the entire Old Testament, including all the laws, all the prophecies, as well as the struggles and the victories of Israel's heroes and of Israel itself, all of it points to Jesus and all of it is fulfilled in him. It's all about Jesus. And in fact, uh, we, we know that Jesus saw the law, saw the Old Testament this way, because of a statement in, in Luke 24, verse 27. So, so the story here is that Jesus is on the road to Emmaus shortly after his resurrection, and he's speaking with two disciples, and Luke tells us that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus saw the Old Testament as pointing to him. So, so he is the center of it all. Now, I want to be clear here that that is not the only thing that the Old Testament is about. You know, so so uh, Charles Spurgeon, for example, is famous for having said, you know, when you preach through an Old Testament text, make a beeline to the cross. And so essentially, you know, his goal was to get to the cross as quickly as he possibly could. And and I don't actually think that's helpful or, or even accurate because there's a whole lot more in the Old Testament than just Jesus. I mean, the Old Testament teaches us a lot about the nature and the glory of God. It teaches us a lot of practical wisdom, and it teaches us a lot of, of very important instruction and history and foundational theology. So, so I do not believe that the Old Testament is only about Jesus. But, but Jesus is saying, that one of the unifying themes of the Old Testament 
is that it shows us our sin. It shows us our inability to save ourselves. I think an important theme that we can sometimes miss is that the Old Testament shows us man's inability to create a peaceful, perfect, just, and righteous society. I mean, Noah couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. And so it shows us our inability and it promises that a Savior is coming someday that is going to fix all of that. So so Jesus is saying that I am that Savior. I am the one that the whole Old Testament points to. And and folks, that has massive implications for, for my life today. So for example... Building off of this, Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the idea is, is that through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, that he has ended the law. He has ended our obligation to obey the commands of the Mosaic law. So so I I am not obligated to obey The Mosaic Law, based on the fact that it's the Mosaic Law. And most importantly, I no longer relate to God through the rituals and through the sacrifices that that God gave to Israel. No, I come directly to God through Christ. So Christ is the end of the law. On a similar note, Romans chapter 7, verse 4 says, You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So, so the context of this verse is that, is that Paul is using a marriage analogy. And he says, uh, very simply, that, that when someone's spouse dies, they are no longer bound to that marriage, and, and they're free to marry someone else. And he says, in a similar manner, the law died with Christ on the cross. It's dead. And because the law is dead, I can now marry someone else. I am married to Jesus, so to speak. So he is my master instead of the Mosaic law. So folks, that's why we no longer worship on on Saturday. That's why we don't observe the Sabbath. It's why we don't offer sacrifices. You know, that's why we don't obey Jewish food laws or or necessarily uh, circumcise babies. It's all because Christ has fulfilled the fundamental purpose of the law. So so Jesus here is making quite the claim. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like. I mean, you know, Jesus is speaking here on this hillside. He's surrounded by Jews. They revere the law. I mean, it is their sacred, most precious possession. And he stands up in front of them and he says, your sacred word is about me. That is a bold, very significant claim. But it's true. The Old Testament is fundamentally pointing to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. So so let me just say that it's really important then that you read your Old Testament in that light. So 1 Samuel 17 tells the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath, as has been commonly said, is not in the Bible to teach you how to kill the giants in your life. Now, now there's various themes that come up uh, in the story of David and Goliath. 
But fundamentally, that story is there. Encourage Israel in a time of darkness that God had provided them with a deliverer in the person of David. David points the fact that someday a seed is going to come from his line who is going to be the ultimate savior, the ultimate deliverer for his people. And I could give other examples along similar lines. But hopefully you get the point. That the Old Testament is there pointing to Jesus always need to read it thinking you know ask yourself what is how is this story pointing me to redemption in christ and the hope of of the perfect kingdom that jesus is going to establish because that's at the center of it all and um and understand too god never intended for the law to remain in effect forever it is fulfilled in christ we live in a new day And a new era because Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the law. So so verse 17 makes a bold claim, a really bold claim in the midst of a Jewish context. And then verses 18 and 19 build on this by affirming or or really clarifying an, an important point. And that is that the law remains inspired and profitable. Now now again, remember that, that when Jesus is speaking here, Uh, He is preparing the way for his instructions in verses 21 through 48. And he's answering the charge that he intends to abolish the law. So so first of all, he he answers that challenge by by denying the idea that the law is insignificant. He says in verse 17, the law is very important because it points to me and I am the fulfillment of the law. And now he follows in verses 18 and 19 by affirming the law's continued value. So so notice the assertion he makes in verse 18. He says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, Now when Jesus here mentions jots and tittles, those are Uh, unfamiliar words to us, he's talking about the smallest details of the Old Testament. So so the dot uh, would refer to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the yod, which is essentially like a little, it looks like an apostrophe, essentially. All right, so it's a very small letter, and the tittle uh, would refer to a small stroke that would distinguish one letter from the other. So it would be, uh, what would be a good comparison for us, would you think of a capital C capital G. How do you tell them apart? Well, there's just a little stroke that's added on to the end of the C, turns a C into a G. And so, Jesus is making a really strong assertion here about the inspiration and the authority of the entire Old Testament. He is saying that it is all God's inspired word down to the smallest letter, and even down to the smallest stroke that distinguishes one letter from another. And that's a really helpful point uh, because lots of people want to believe that, that parts of the Old Testament are, are more inspired and more authoritative than others. You know, that, that some of it is, is just a little archaic. You know, we, we've moved past that. And we know better than they did back then, so we can just kind of get rid of that part of the Old Testament. You know, other people... Uh, this is a, a, an idea that goes back to uh, the 2nd century, w- would believe 
that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament is, 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 is angry and, and he's mean and he's you know, sort of like a, you know, a petty God of the Greeks. But the God of the New Testament is kind and gracious and merciful. So we can just kind of dump the Old Testament, get rid of it, throw it out, and, and just cling to the New Testament. But Jesus won't have any of that, will he? He says that all of it, down to the letters, is God's inspired word. And so the Bible sits in judgment over us. We do not sit in judgment over the Bible. And Jesus says that the Old Testament will continue to have this sort of authority till all is fulfilled. Now, now I think it's worth emphasizing that that he uses a different verb here in verse 18 than the one he used in verse 17. So the, the idea really is, until all is accomplished, or as he says earlier in the verse, till heaven and earth pass away. So the Old Testament, your Old Testament will remain God's authoritative word as long as there is time, until the eternal state. That's a long time, all right? So, so, so Jesus is very clear. That, that he is no radical who is out to undermine God's sacred word. So yes, he's going to build off of it. In verses 21 through 48, he is going to speak as an equal authority to the law of Moses. But he wants to be clear that the things that he is adding to the Old Testament in no way diminish the value and the authority of what God had already said. So notice the implication of this that he draws in verse 19. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, Jesus here uses a strong contrast to make a very strong point. He says, if you disregard even the most insignificant command of the Old Testament, you throw it out you will be called least in the kingdom. If you hold to it all and you teach it all, you will be called great in the kingdom. So in other words, how I view the Old Testament, my status throughout the millennial kingdom, and I think probably extending into the eternal state, it is all tied faithfulness to the Old Testament. So, so Jesus has a really high view of the Scriptures, the highest view. And, and, and it's clear that, that, that we are not allowed to just sort of cherry pick which, which parts of the Old Testament we want to believe and which parts that we want to submit to as, as an authority. It's not our place. You know, sometimes, uh, I don't think this is as big of a deal, and sometimes churches can just spend all their time in the New Testament and, and never really dive into the depths of, of saying in the Old Testament scriptures. That's a problem. Jesus says that that we are to to preach and and teach and learn the whole counsel of God and that we are to obey it. Jesus is clear that the Old Testament remains God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. But, But while that is so, all right, Verse 19 also raises some really complicated questions. 
I mean, you read through verse 19, and it says that we are expected to obey, or he says, do not break even the least of these commandments. So, so how does that fit with the verse I read earlier in Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law? I think it raises a really important question that, that we need to think about. I mean, aren't we under grace, not under law? In fact, uh, earlier, um, a Roger read Romans 6, verse 14. And what did it say? It ended by saying, you are not under law, but under grace. All right, so, so, how, so, so how do I reconcile that statement in Romans 6.14 with Jesus' statement here in, in, in this chapter here? You know, so, so, and this is a big issue. So, so just you know, one example. I mean, it's, it's, Jesus seems to be saying that I need to obey every command in the law. But in Acts chapter 10, you know, Peter has a vision and, and, and it's regarding the, the animals that the law declared unclean, and God says, what God has cleansed, do not call common. He tells him, you don't need to obey Jewish food laws anymore. You are free to eat all the things that I previously forbade. So, so verse 19 cannot mean that Christians must obey. We must follow every jot and tittle of the law. So what does he mean? Well, well, I'd like to answer uh, this question with three statements. The first is, I just want to say very clearly, that Christians are not bound by the Old Testament law. And the New Testament is, is very clear about this. So, for example, Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, so Paul couldn't be clearer, could he? That I am no longer under the tutor of the law. Another passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, says, For the priesthood being changed, speaking there of the fact that we are no longer under the priests of the law, the priests of Aaron, instead we are under the priesthood of Christ. He says, For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of law. So God is, again, very clear that, that he has freed us from the law. And you can see that when you read through the book of Acts, right? You know, that Peter and, and Paul and the various apostles, that they oftentimes, I mean, they honored the law. They were respectful of the law. They would go to the temple to pray and do those various things. But they didn't obey every mandate of the law. And they certainly didn't expect Gentile believers to obey all those laws. So the apostles clearly, not understand Jesus to mean that Christ's disciples must obey every detail until Christ returns. No, they believe that we are freed from the law. But does that mean that, well, well, it's party time. I'm not under any law at all. I can do whatever I want. Well, no, of course not. Uh, secondly, notice that Christians are bound to the law of Christ. The important passage regarding this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. So, so Paul says, he's talking here about doing evangelism. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. So, so the idea is, is, is that when Paul was with Jews, he honored the customs of the law. 
because he didn't want to create an unnecessary hindrance to the gospel. So he says, to those who are under the law as under the law. So, so again, when he was with people who, who, who honored the law, he, he would submit to it. He, he would not be needlessly offensive that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, now who would that be? That would be the Gentiles. He lived among them as without law. Though not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without Christ. So, so he says that, that when he is with Gentiles, he does not obey all, all the scruples of the law. No, he adapts to them and he follows uh, he, he tries to, to, make a, uh, to, to, to remove hindrances to the gospel. But he quickly clarifies that he does not mean that he is under no law at all, right? He wouldn't want to give anyone that impression. No, rather, he is under the law of Christ. Now, now, you may be wondering, well, what in the world is that? What is the law of Christ? And the New Testament never defines it specifically. But I think if you look through uh, the entirety of the New Testament, you, you can say that the law of Christ is the ethic of the New Testament as reflected in the teaching and in the example of Jesus and the apostles. All right, so the law of Christ is the ethic of the New Testament as reflected in the teaching and the example of Jesus and the apostles. So I think it's important that we just recognize that, that my standard of conduct, the way I'm expected to be as a Christian, it is fundamentally rooted in the New Testament. So, so the fact, and I am expected to do the things that the New Testament commands. The fact that I am under grace, not under law, does not mean I can do whatever I want. I am bound to the commands of the New Testament. So, 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 so that's what Jesus is saying here. But, but if that's, well, so, so if that's the case, all right, well, if, if, if I'm only bound by what the New Testament says, well, then what does that mean for the, or for what the New Testament says, what does that mean for the Old Testament? Well, I would add here that the law remains a vital source for understanding God's law. Now, it's true. It's true that the New Testament introduces some big changes to the Old Testament. But I think it's also very clear that, that the law of Christ is fundamentally rooted in the law of Moses. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you can't really understand God's will for us as Christians today without the background and the context of the Old Testament. And that's because it's the same God in both, right? I mean, God's righteousness never changes. So, so the core issues of righteousness in the Old Testament don't change when we move into the New Testament. So let me give you an example. You know, for example, the, the New Testament never commands us to observe the Sabbath. That's the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated as authoritative for us as New Testament Christians. So, so, so I do not believe that, that God has commanded us to observe the Sabbath. But, all right, the New Testament does call Sunday the Lord's Day. And we would be foolish to think that I can't learn anything about how I should view Sunday based on what the Old Testament says about the Sabbath. Or here's another one. First uh, Peter 1, verse 16, repeats the command from the law, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, now, now the, interestingly, the, the, the context of that command in Leviticus chapter 11 is food laws. So, so I 
am not supposed to pursue holiness by not eating pork, and I'm really thankful for that, all right? But a lot about what holiness is from various other aspects of the law. So, for example, the New Testament very clearly calls us to sexual purity, and the Old Testament gives a lot of details about what sexual purity is and is not that really ought to inform my understanding of sexual purity. Same goes for loving my neighbor. The New Testament tells me to love my neighbor. And the law includes a lot of very detailed instructions about how to love your neighbor. And I can learn a lot about what it means for me as a New Testament Christian to love my neighbor by looking at those details. The same goes for how to be just and righteous and merciful and all sorts of other things. And Jesus really is going to set a perfect example of this in the remainder of chapter 5. He doesn't just blow up the Old Testament and start over. No, in each of these six paragraphs, he starts with a statement in the law. He starts with a truth. And then he uses it as a foundation to build a new ethic for the times in which we live in the church of the nations versus the law of Israel. So so that means that if you want to know God, and if you want to know God's will for your life, you need to know your Old Testament. Now, I know sometimes reading the Old Testament can get laborious. You you do your year through the Bible plan, and you get to Leviticus, and and you're reading all the, the details of how to build the tabernacle. You know, and how big the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, and you know, you know, covering the, the, the poles with gold, and you're like, what in the world is the point of all this? Why am I reading this? Well, well Jesus says that, that, that the only way that you can fully comprehend and, and, and understand God and know God's will for your life is to master those things. I mean, you need to read those things because they do help inform us of who God is and what God's will is for my life. And, and I'll tell you from experience that the more you read those things, the more you're going to understand them. And the more you understand them, the more you're going to see the significance and the relevance of it all to your life as a Christian today. So, so know your Old Testament. And keep plugging. And take advantage of the rich foundation that it provides. And do so remembering the promise that Jesus gives here in verse 19. That those who love the Old Testament practice its principles and teach them what will happen to them. They will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to value his word and use it. And then the third truth that that Jesus points out in, in, in our text in verse 20 is that the law of Christ demands more not less. So verse 20, he closes the paragraph by saying, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now now that is quite the clarification for for those people who who believe that grace is a license to indulge the flesh. You know, that, that, that sometimes we can have this idea, Christ has freed me from the law, you know, yippee, I can do what I want. Well, Jesus says that he doesn't actually demand less of New Testament Christians. He actually demands more. 
And I'd like to make three points from this verse. First of all, Jesus is describing here genuine righteousness. Now, now I, I want to point this out because it's pretty common uh, for people to look at verse 20 as, as basically a statement about inability. So, so, so I need to be righteous like God to be saved. I can never do that. I need salvation in Christ. And, 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 and it's a common way uh, to look at this verse. And of course, it's true, right? That, that I can never be righteous enough to save myself, so I need uh, the, the, the righteousness of Christ credited to me. But that's not what Jesus means in this context. And I say that because verses 21 through 48 do not follow by talking about imputed righteousness or the righteousness that Jesus gives in the cross. They follow by talking about practical righteousness. And notice how Jesus closes in verse 48. He closes the section in verse 48 by saying, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we ought to understand verse 20 and verse 48 as saying the same thing. That God demands that we pursue genuine righteousness. Alright, so, so verse 20 is making a, quite the demand. God requires more of His people, not less in the New Testament. Jesus demands a, a superior righteousness, which, which brings me to my second point, which is that genuine righteousness is never skin deep. Now again, think about Jesus here in His Jewish context. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews on, on this hillside, and, and these people, they revere the Pharisees and the scribes, right? I mean, they're, they're the religious elite. They're the people that we all aspire to be. And Jesus says, that's not enough. You need a righteousness that is superior to the scribes and Pharisees. So, so for Jesus to say that would have been a shocking thing to these people. What? More righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees? How can that be possible? So, so what does Jesus mean here? Well, well, the answer comes in the rest of the chapter. So, so just as an example, notice what Jesus says in verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So, so what does Jesus do here? Well, well, first of all, he cites one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. All right? I think that's pretty clear. But, but Jesus says that he demands something more than simply you not murder people. He says, I demand that you are not angry with your brother. Now, that's tough, isn't it? Now, I'll tell you, honestly, I have never in my life been tempted to murder someone. Like, I do not struggle to obey the command not to murder. But I tell you what, I struggle daily with being angry at other people. That's, that's a hard one. I, that's a really difficult command. I'm not looking forward to my sermon prep this week, all right, because i got to talk about that. It's a whole lot easier not to murder people than it is to not be angry at your brother. And, and, and the next five paragraphs are all going to make similar demands. You know, he talks later on about 
you know, not just that we don't commit adultery, but that we don't look at a woman with lust. On and on Jesus goes. So, so God demands a deep-seated righteousness of the heart. And, and that's, that is a big reason why the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful and, and so significant to us as Christians. Because most religions of the world are built on external conformity and external rituals. You know, so you're good if you've never murdered someone. You know, and, and you've never committed adultery. And, uh, and on and on down the line, you've not violated an oath. And, and so, you know, and, and, and so, you know the most religions would say, yeah, if you do these things, and you know, then you, you, know, you, you go to, you, know, you do this, this religious ritual over here, you say this prayer, and you wiggle this thing, then, then, then you can cover all the other things. And, and yeah, you know, we don't celebrate anger, but everyone gets angry. So, so most religions don't even address those things. They're just left off the table as, as essentially impossible things to deal with. But throughout the sermon, Jesus demands that we address those heart issues. He's not satisfied with a righteousness that is skin deep. And that's his point here in verse 20. That the external righteousness of the Pharisees is not enough. God wants your heart to be pure and clean. Now, of course, that's bad news for anyone who thinks that they are going to work their way into heaven. You know, I, you know there's a lot of people, you go around town, maybe there's someone in here today that you walk around town, you say, you believe you're going to heaven? And most people are going to say, of course I am. Well, why do you believe you're going to heaven? Well, I've never murdered anyone. I've been faithful to my spouse. I've never committed adultery. And, and on and on down the line, they go with those external things where the scribes and the Pharisees did great. And, and they think that those things, plus a few other religious rituals, are, are all they need to go to heaven. So, so they base their confidence for eternity based on the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus tells you, and, and if that's where you are today, I'm going to heaven because I've never murdered anyone. Well, Jesus says point blank that that is not enough to get you into heaven. You you can never be righteous enough to earn salvation. And if that's what you've been trusting in, you know, external conformity, external rituals to get you into heaven, then I hope that you will see that Jesus is very clear that you are not as righteous as you think you are. And that instead, you need salvation that comes only in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He he bore the judgment for your sin so, so that His righteousness can be credited to you and so that you can have eternal life in Him. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, I hope that today you will admit that you are a sinner who is in desperate need of a salvation outside of yourself. And and you will ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and save you. Do not leave today without doing that. And and if you need help working through those things, we want to talk to you and and we want to help you know that you are saved. So so genuine righteousness, folks, is never skin deep. But even if you are saved, you, you might read that and think, 
wow. I mean, I am a mess. I'm always going to be a mess. How in the world can I possibly live up to what Jesus is saying here and throughout the remainder of the sermon? Well, the final point I'd like to make building off of verse 20 is that genuine righteousness is only possible through the new birth. You know, and Jesus can demand a lot of his disciples because he alone gives the power to genuinely pursue these things. You know, do you know the, the reason the law failed was not because the law was imperfect. The law was righteous. The law is good, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. Now, the reason the law failed is because we're sinners, and we can't keep the law on our own. You know, so, so the law told Israel what to do, but it didn't give them the ability to do it. But a big part of how Christ is the fulfillment of the law is that he actually, in the words of Jeremiah 31, writes the law on my heart. He doesn't just tell me what to do. He gives me the will and the power to to genuinely pursue the type of change that he outlines in this passage. So so, so are we going to live up to the Sermon of the Mount perfectly? Of course not. You You will probably get angry with someone before the end of the day. But, but, but hopefully, by Christ, we are making genuine progress. We're not just ignoring the things that are coming up in the remainder of the sermon. We are pursuing them, and that we are pursuing them with the confidence that Christ has given me the power to change, and He will change me by His grace. So, so as we wrap up today, let's rejoice that Messiah has come. We are not under the law any longer, and I am abundantly thankful for that. And and Christ has fulfilled the law. So so in the meantime, let's continue to revere the law. Revere the Old Testament. Read it, study it, understand it. Learn God's will from it. But then finally, and most importantly, let's pursue genuine righteousness through the law of Christ in, in His power and in his strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you uh, for its unity. Uh, Thank you for the story of redemption that you have provided. And uh, Lord, thank you uh, that Christ has come, and he has fulfilled the law. And thank you uh, that we can pursue genuine righteousness in the strength that he provides. And so, Lord, I pray today for any who are here that do not yet know Christ as Savior, that, Lord, today they would see their utter inability, hopelessness of saving themselves, and I pray that they would cast themselves on Jesus. And I pray for those of us that know you as Savior, that, Lord, we would live out the principles of this passage, that we would study your word and revere your word, and pursue genuine righteousness in the strength that you alone provide. And so give us grace this week to do that. Give us grace this week to fight anger, to fight lust, to fight for truth and integrity and love and and all the other things that Jesus calls us to. And may you glorify yourself and use us to reach others as a result in Christ's name.